Welcome back to another episode with The Fishbowl. I'm Michelle. And I'm Zach. And Kevin couldn't make it today, which was a shame because it took us 45 minutes to learn how to turn on the equipment. So, Kev, we miss you. And today we're here with two fantastic guests by the name of Oni and Josh. Guys, go ahead and give us an intro. Tell us a bit about yourselves. Hey, my name is Josh Schumann. I just finished up an emergency medicine, internal medicine residency up in Philadelphia. I'm a transplant from Oklahoma, and I'm really excited to make my attending debut. I just finished an awesome chief year with Dr. Okorji. And I'm Oni Okorji. I also finished a combined internal medicine, emergency medicine at Philadelphia, and I'm going to fellowship critical care and very excited for that. So, yeah. Guys, you have been true role models for us young EMIM residents here in Philadelphia. And we're so grateful to have you here because you guys bring combined 12 years of residency knowledge. um, And we're hoping to pick your brains a bit. So we have a bunch of questions for you. Could you start us off, Michelle? Yeah. So in this episode, we really want to focus on how to deal with uh, different attending styles. Um, I know, especially in the emergency department, you're working with a bunch of different providers from day to day, and everyone has kind of different personalities they bring to the table, different clinical practices. So our first question to start off is, how do you adapt in the emergency department when you're changing the attending that you're working with every day? Um, How do you get used to their personal styles? For me, the that changes during kind of as you progress during residency. I will say in my younger residency years, I would adapt my practice style more so to the attendings and would kind of adapt my orders and the, you know, medication management. As I grew in residency, I, I kind of as I became more confident in my skills and practice styles, I would say that actually my practice style didn't change very much attending to attending. And I think that's part of growing as a resident. I will say that um, everyone has attendings they like better than others. And you may vibe with different attendings as a younger resident than you do as an older resident because you start to appreciate different practice styles and different things you learn on shift. Um I think one really important thing to remember is that you will learn something from every shift. And sometimes it might be you will learn things that you don't want to do in the future. And that's okay because that's part of developing your unique uh, management. Um, That is well put. Um, So for me, I would say that younger Oni definitely they try to adapt and try to learn what does this attendant not want in this shift today. Um, do they not want these particular labs or are they more so minimalist or are they more so kind of broad looking for zebras and that's what we're going with. Um, but then as I, you know, developed, um, a little bit more in a career, I had my own style and if you're able to explain out your thought process, then they're able to kind of accept your style a bit more. Um, you definitely do have attendants that, you may like as a younger resident just because you did work or vibe with them more. And then as an older resident, that hard attendant, you start to kind of understand their thought process and what they were trying to teach you then. So 
I know for graduation, I walked up to like a couple of tenants who I felt were difficult in the initial process and said, I really appreciate how difficult you were initially because it made me who I am today. So I think definitely going in with different attendants, it's difficult. But as you grow, you will definitely learn and appreciate your own style. And also, as Jess is saying, what to do, what not to do, it's all part of learning. As a person that definitely has a fiery personality in the ER, I've sought out advice from you both over the years. Advice I'm still grateful for because it's definitely changed how I've kind of viewed the ER and I, you're both smiling and I know exactly the scenarios that you guys are thinking about. Um, and I thank you both dearly. So that being said, this question, Michelle specifically pointed out to me that I have to ask, what happens when you have an attending or a decision that you have to, that you disagree with? How do you kind of navigate when you're speaking with the attending, explain your thought process? Um, if you still disagree with the decision, despite that, you know, what's, What's the next step? So I would say as a resident, you just have to remember at the end of the day, you are still practicing under the license of your tenant. Is it difficult to kind of like understand and I guess swallow? Yes, it is. Um, So if you have a decision that you want to make, I think it's important to discuss that with your attendant. And if they do agree, then go for it. But if they don't agree, you can absolutely try to discuss and express the reason of your thought process and why you want to do what you want to do. Because if any outcome is further line, um, what's to come of that scenario or situation, it would necessarily not be you. It would be the attendant. So it, it can be difficult, but just know that it is residence is very temporary, very temporary. You will be an attendant one day. And then whatever you want to do at that point, you can then do it. Oni, you said something to me that I will never forget, um, paraphrased as growing pains. And I, I don't know if, if that was a phrase that was chosen because you currently have a little boy who's seven months of age now, or if it's something that you've experienced yourself, this this growing pain. But um, that's something that stuck with me in our many, our many sit downs in the windowsill in the ICU. Growing pains. so i was going to say something similar to oni and that it is ultimately yes your license but your attending's license who signs your chart i think most disagreements in residency i was able to come up with a compromise of some sort i and i would also say that there's multiple ways to manage most conditions so whether you choose metoprolol or cardizem for your AFib with RBR in the end, it probably doesn't matter that much. We all have personal preferences for X, Y, or Z reason, but in the end, it probably doesn't matter that much because they're both acceptable managements. That's just an example, but I would say that there are, you know, multiple ways to do procedures. There are multiple ways to talk to families. There are multiple times when you can decide if an order is indicated or not indicated, and most of the time, if you have a good reason for, for me, if I have a good reason for wanting to order something or like if a junior resident has a good reason for wanting to order a test, I'm typically okay with that as long as it's, I don't think it's going to harm the patient. And as far as like medication preferences, you get to know your attendings and can kind of predict what medications they may want to order. Um, and if their med doesn't work, you can always try your medication next. Okay, yeah, that is 
excellent. I think that especially now completing intern year, there's been several times that I've run into that, like that strange spot of, okay, I don't know a whole lot just yet, but I just read this article and I think this would be a really cool thing to try. And it's been really well received if I approach it from that angle of like, hey, this is what my thought process is. What have you seen in your years of practice that would go for or against that? And usually it's it's been pretty well received. Um, especially letting everyone know my motives and like, this is coming from an educational, I'm wanting to learn. This is a cool thing that I've seen that I might want to try and not a you're wrong, I'm right type of attitude. Um, and that kind of leads into, I know whether we're in the emergency department or if we're on the floors or in the ICU, our patients are under our primary care and we're having to bring in consultants a lot, uh, whether it be GI, cardiology, neurology. Um, we're asking them to see our patient in consultation and we're going to bat for our patients. And sometimes those conversations can be very difficult. So can you speak to where is the line when you're speaking to a consult about um, the care of your patient? You're wanting to really go to bat for your patient, but where's that line when you disagree? I will say that it's much easier to have those phone calls or those conversations face-to-face if possible. Um, And secondarily, if unable to do it face-to-face over the phone and not via text message or Epic chat or whatever your secure messaging application is, because messages can be misconstrued, especially without a tone of voice present behind it. Um, I think expressing your concerns to the consultant is really important and you can request consultants come to bedside. Sometimes it can be more difficult to come to bedside or to request that as a resident. But if you're going to bat for your patient and you're not getting the results that you prefer, don't forget you can ask your attending to have an attending to attending conversation with that consultant. And I think that's important to remember, especially when, um, you know, sometimes at night, we might be dealing with some of these conversations on our own. It's You always have someone on call that isn't attending that can call and request evaluation or request you know, X, Y, or Z service. And there are ways that attendings and your superiors can escalate issues if you're having them. And it's important to bring them in, into the loop so they know the you know issues you're having. So this question, the one scenario that just came to my mind... Um, Recently, like three weeks ago, so uh, there was a patient who um, I was admin. I wasn't like the primary care, but the primary team saw this patient and they wanted certain consulting group to see the patient. And their decision on the note was far beyond what the team was thinking initially. And instead of, you know, the team, the primary team, they came to me. They're like, this is so silly. This is what they said. And they were going to like epic chat like well like no this is what we want you guys to do i said wait take a step back and ask what is your reasoning behind this because not everything is written out on a note and so when they phrase the question that way to the consultant group what is your reasoning what else could you be thinking that maybe wasn't written out in the note the consultant group then went actually into like a big teaching mode and like you know there were different things that the primary team was not thinking of and they said oh that makes sense so i do believe that um a lot of times you know for on the floors in the unit in the er especially um it's good to advocate for your patient 
I do agree with Jess that it is best to have these discussions in person if you can. But at the same time, to kind of take a step back and say, what is your reason behind not wanting to do X, Y, and Z? Because they are our consultant group. And so they have maybe a little bit more knowledge into reason why they don't want to do something. We know a little bit of everything, but they know more of one thing. So I think it's good to have that discussion. However, if after you've kind of like explored and you say this patient needs this it's and it's what they need, then it's definitely important to advocate for your patients. I know that's fantastic. I think having a conversation in person is a lot easier because like you said, you get the facial expressions. Um, tone is a lot easier to assess, um, especially over chat. We use secure chat a lot to speak with people and you don't always see the context uh, and what the, where they're coming from. Um, so that kind of leads to, I'm glad you mentioned like taking a step back and really assessing the situation. I feel like the jobs that we do, tension is very high. Um, there's a, there's, it's big risk. We're dealing with people's lives. Um, so can you speak to a situation that you've been in where, you know, tension has been very high in a room and you've had to de-escalate the situation in order to move forward with the patient's care? Code blues, code blues. (laughs) Always code blues. <laughs> Whatever do you mean by that, Odie? Always code blues. I think Jess can also agree. I feel like it is like the number one place where you have to immediately de-escalate to move forward. Like you cannot move forward with everyone tension high and everyone having palpitation when the patient has no pulse. So um, I would say from my experience, because I've seen Jess run a code, she's a badass at it. You have to be able to quickly de-escalate the room. You have to quickly be able to let people know to leave. May not be nicely at the time, but hopefully they understand because we're all in the medical field and we're all trained to be able to tolerate these things. But you need to be able to gain control. And so I would say that is probably the number one place you have to, even consultant groups can come in, in the middle of your code. For example, funny story. So I had a code. (laughs) This was towards the end of like graduated night flow. And it was a code one. So it was like a cardiac ICU patient, but the, you know, chest was not open, but they did have, um, a chest tube. Just for the just for the listeners, can you explain what a code one is? Because oh. it does vary from hospital to hospital. So code one is a pulseless patient who had a recent cabbage and has like an open chest. Um, but this patient's chest was closed, but they had, um, I guess I would say a chest tube that's attached to like a like a port like a window like a pericardial like window. So for this particular code one, we all get Michelle's laughing because she knows exactly what I'm talking about. You know, everyone is, everyone's doing great. Um, we're running the code. Um, we're doing what needs to be done. And, you know, the trauma surgeon comes in. He's lovely, lovely, lovely person. But he came in as if the chest needed to be opened or, you know, any emergency surgery. That's what he was there for. But he's focused, focused. He like literally nav- like gravitated, like, yeah, 
yeah, gravitated towards the chest tube and said, hey, hey, that chest tube, hey, is that serosanguinous? This is like in the middle of the code. And I'm like, I promise if it was something that was needed, this is actually probably doing a job. If we needed to do like percodosynthesis, this is actually working. Let's actually focus on the code. Um, anyway, we ended up getting Ross, but he just could not gravitate outside of that chest tube so consultants will come in and they will focus on what they want to focus on so i would say as a primary team it's important to like de-escalate and you may have to ask people to leave um for you to be able to actually do what you need to do i will also say there's times i'm not sure if this is the exact topic you wanted where you have to de-escalate families during difficult conversations and when i feel things getting a little bit difficult. Sometimes I start with um, asking them to explain to me what they know about the situation or what they understand about what's going on so that everyone in the room can be on the same page, especially if there have been multiple conversations with different family members on inpatient service. It can happen in the ER, but more so on the inpatient service. If you've talked to family member A this morning, family member B two days ago, and you want to make sure everyone has all the information so you're not getting, you know, either questions thrown at you or confused looks when you're talking about different things, I think it's really helpful to kind of back up and start from the beginning of why the patient's in the hospital, why we're, you know, what we're talking about today, even if it's just a care update and kind of what the patient's goals are for today and for their hospitalization and kind of for the next sometimes few months, because um, it's important to frame everything from the patient's goals standpoint. I can also comment on de-escalating difficult situations with nurses. I find that if I explain my thought process behind asking for things, it makes it a lot easier. I tend to try to not do it in front of the patient because they don't need to know if we are. They need to understand our thought process, but they don't always need to know if the like nurses and providers are having a disagreement. But even as simple as asking for a scale weight on a patient, and like that can be very annoying and tedious for people. And I understand that. But, you know, maybe just saying I want to ensure that I am properly dosing this patient's Tylenol because they had a febrile seizure and they're a child. And I understand the mom thinks they weigh X, but I want to ensure that it's the proper dose for when I send them home. You'll get a lot better the response than just saying, hey, I need a, a scale weight on this patient. Like if you explain. So you touched on two topics that we were hoping to get with you that I want to take this opportunity and elaborate a lot more on. Sorry. That's no, it's I'm really glad you brought these up. Um, the first of which is, you know, difficult conversations with families. We do on the primary service uh, per ACGME guidelines about 14 patient contacts a day plus admissions. Um, that's a lot of families to start to interact with, especially as a new intern coming into the program. What advice would you give interns that are starting off with trying to find the right things to say with families and being a voice of comfort to them as they're starting their medicine journey? I would like to say I'm very passionate about having these conversations with patients and their families. I found it invaluable as a younger resident and even still to this day to watch other people's conversations. So if your senior or your attending is going to have a family meeting, ask if you can go with them. Your discharge summary, your progress notes, like they can wait. We can help you with them. Like it's a team effort. Like go to the family conversation and just observe and watch 
how they interact and watch how they respond to families' interactions and kind of how they pivot when needed. And you'll start to learn the phrases that you'll feel comfortable using that will de-escalate situations, that will provide comfort to situations. I talk a lot about reframing to the patient's goals and what makes, you know, what are their goals? Like, obviously, we all want our family members to live forever with a great quality of life, but sometimes we need to reframe conversations to patient's goals. But watching how seasoned physicians do this with grace and success is like played a huge role in how I now hold my conversations. And I think that is like one of my biggest pieces of advice for interns is like, just go watch as many as you can. And as far as having the more like the simpler conversations with families, like whether it's via the telephone, you're just providing an update. You can always practice with your senior, you know, what you're going to say. You can ask your senior to be in the room. Like if you're going to call them on the phone, put them on speakerphone. That way, if it kind of goes south, we can rescue you. Your attending can rescue you. Like we've been rescued before. We're happy to rescue you if it goes south. Um, but just if you kind of practice of like kind of what your update is for the day, then that will give you more confidence in knowing exactly what you're going to talk to the family about. Yeah, you literally hit all the points. Um, I think practice would make eventual perfection um, incumbent literally everything that I was thinking of. Um, first year residents, I think, you know, especially let's say you do the initial admission, you've gotten to know the family. A lot of times you may build a connection to a family and you may feel closer to a family compared to another family. Um, it's important to go in and see how do difficult conversations, difficult, difficult, difficult conversations um, are had. Um, I think the ICU is a good place where a lot of those do happen. You see family um, dynamics change when patients are very sick. So I think it's very important to go in and try to, if not participate, listen, and you will see styles that you like and you will see styles that you don't like. And again, it's still part of learning and you even if you sit there and you say, hmm, I wouldn't have used that word, um, it's still okay to see how it plays out. Um, and then if you have a family who, let's say, they ask a lot of questions and you don't know the answer to these questions because you're just kind of like a first-year resident who started and you're like, I don't even know half of what we're doing here. Um, it's important to be able to say, I do not know. And I'm going to get someone that knows, or I do not know, and I'm going to find out and get back to you than making something up because it will be much harder, much, much harder to kind of retract, go back um, for families. And you have the families who are, you know, Dr. Google. Um, it's important to educate them that the scenarios you see on TV that you see on Google is not what you're seeing here now and be able to kindly explain to them if you know they want a little bit more learning take that time um, to be able to educate them they really do appreciate that more um, at the end of the day um, I would say compared to just like saying no you're wrong this is what we're doing and just leaving I think that's that's yeah yeah and I um only and I worked in the ICU, uh, July month one, um, which, uh, 
had a lot of very interesting conversations that happened in the ICU. And it was fantastic being able to go into the room with you when you had these extremely difficult conversations, um, especially ones that involved end of life care. And just kind of being a fly on the wall and watching the interactions and how you handled it with grace was such an amazing learning opportunity that helped me further on down the road. And it's nice to, especially after you sit in several of them, I got to the point where I would sit and listen to what the patient was asking and kind of think of my own response and see how similar it was to what the senior resident or the attending said. And then I could compare like, okay, I was on the right track thinking that this would be the answer or, oh, whoa, I was way off base. I could see where their answer is a little bit, you know, more gentle, uh, more patient friendly and approaching it uh, with a lot more grace. So you kind of take that opportunity to grow um, without you know, causing any of the damage of giving either false information or false hope in a situation that you don't totally understand, um, which is kind of the difficult part with some of these hard conversations, especially in an ICU setting with the critically ill patients is it's natural to want to give people hope and want to make them feel better. Um, but that's not why we're there. We're there to make sure their loved one's taken care of and that they have all the information that we have and they understand it in their language. And so being present for those conversations is invaluable. And one thing I would say I want to add to this is, especially in the ICU, because at the end of the day, the healthcare system is now riddled with a lot of paperwork. Um, there are a lot of notes, there are a lot of things to sign, and then also you have families to talk to. And I think talking to family members is the most crucial part, um, the most important part, so that they feel that they're part of the team with the patient. But it's important, I think, to start to dedicate if there's one point of contact, because it becomes a lot talking to different family members and having the same conversation. It sounds like you are in a loop recorder playing like I literally just said this to like someone like 10 minutes ago now I'm repeating it um so it's important to develop that relationship with a point of contact and say hey I'm happy to you know talk to you you need to talk to the rest of your family if anyone else really do have further questions because you couldn't explain they can come back and ask but it's important to have one person to be able to like discuss with the rest of the family I would also just say that I have used the like group call functions on phones if family's not able to be present. So I could have one conversation with multiple family members where they all heard the same information. That can help when there if there are more difficult family relation inter like interpersonal relationships amongst the family members. Sometimes it can help if they both hear the same information. So that is one way you can keep yourself from making multiple phone calls, but still talk to multiple people. So the second thing, Schumann, that you had brought up was we, we talked about kind of navigating family discussions, was navigating difficult conversations with members of the healthcare team, whether it be nurses, whether it be respiratory therapists, maybe mid-level providers. Um, can you talk a little bit about ways of kind of navigating when there's disagreement or maybe there's, you know, not as much cohesiveness as there needs to be on the team to kind of help make sure that everything's in play. 
Sure. Anyone who's known me since intern year knows that I've gotten a lot better at this over the years, or so I'm told. I think that it's been invaluable. It's been invaluable part of my process and growing to learn how to explain my thought process to other members of the healthcare team. And everyone knows when you're busy in the emergency room or busy on the floors, you don't have 20 minutes to discuss why you need X, Y, and Z done. You need to find a way to succinctly explain why you want something done, listen to the other party's concerns, and come to an agreement on what's going to happen. And I think it's important to also listen to their concerns and their thought process because that might alter your treatment plan some. You know, maybe they don't want to give the extra dose of Lasix because the patient hasn't been sleeping at night. So maybe you need to give it tomorrow at an earlier time so the patient can sleep at night. You know, maybe they're concerned about the patient's ability to go home because you're planning to discharge them, but they know that the patient, you know, doesn't have their family at home because they're out of town. Or people, other members of the healthcare team will always have information that you're not privy to just because that's how our healthcare system works. And it's impossible for you as a provider to know everything. So it's important to have your plan and your you know, opinion about what needs to happen, but to also listen to the other members and make them feel heard and come up with the safest plan for the patient. I have nothing to add. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I will also say it can also help develop relationships with other providers and nursing staff to quickly debrief after a situation. And it does not have to be a code to debrief. I have debriefed in emergency rooms after a sick patient came in that required me to maybe be direct with my orders because I needed things done quickly. And then once the patient's stable in 15 or 30 minutes, we can have a conversation with outside the patient's room about, hi, thank you so much for getting these things done expediently. How do you prefer this is done differently in the future? And oftentimes they're like, oh, the patient's stable now. It's great. On the topic of debriefing, um, I can recall my intern year, I had a complication during a procedure. And I had Zach Messina, who we all know and love, thankfully, as my as my senior, probably one of the most, you know, constructive debriefing sessions. But at the same time, you know, it it was that feeling that everything was going to be okay. You know, the patient did turn out to be fine. But, you know, you guys have gone through five, six years of residency where you've had procedures, you've seen interns kind of come and gone maybe, maybe not have made a mistake on a procedure, you guys as well. Um, what would you say to interns that um, maybe will make a mistake or have made a mistake to kind of keep in mind so they don't, you know, so they don't beat themselves up over it? I guess in what, do you mind elaborating a little bit more? So when I had, I had uh, my first, um, I, I, I had a complication during a chest tube. And I felt like it was completely my fault. Um, they were It was a known complication of a chest tube. And I was really beating myself up over it the next couple of days to the next week. And I, to the point where I kind of shied away from wanting to do procedures. And you Zach both- is the best person <laughs> for that. <laughs> yes, he is. And you both know that I am the first one to grab, a, grab any procedure that I can get my, get my hands on. So... It was a big, it was kind of a big uh, shock for me. But have you guys been in scenarios where, you know, you've kind of had to work through helping another co-resident, you know, get over a complicated, not get over, but like work through, you know, the mental strain of getting through a bad procedure 
I would say the first thing is if you feel bad after something goes wrong, it makes for a great physician. I think the scariest physicians are those that don't have any ounce of remorse after something goes wrong because feeling bad at least makes you go back and think and rethink and rethink the process of what you did. And the likelihood of that happening again lessens tremendously because you are now a lot more careful and you have really put some thought process into it. Um, I think that it's a really difficult question, but I can definitely see people who after procedures want to shy away. But in our line of practice, you have to go back again. You have to go back. And if not, you're never going to do another chest tube again. You're going to say, you know what? I don't think I want to do emergency medicine because they do chest tubes. This is it. I'm just going to stick with internal medicine. But I think it's okay to like go through the process of grief of like what happened. But again, be able to understand that you have to go back in again and do what needs to be done. I think talking through the process, if you have a great senior, if if it's not a great senior that's with you at that moment, find a senior to talk through with it. Um, so that way you can kind of like walk through the process of what happened and how to navigate if you were to have a complication and what to do and to be able to, I guess, in your own mind, debrief because the whole process and reason to debrief is not to say, hey, you did this wrong, but it's to be able to have a conversation because if there's something that could be improved for the next patient, then that's the goal, to be able to like help the next person. Growing pains. Growing pains. Um, So that's my thought process with that. Don't forget that there is usually a sim lab and you can always, depending on the procedure and the complication, ask one of your seniors or attendings if they're willing to do some sim procedures with you to get you more comfortable for your next procedure. And at least we have supportive program director and GM, program directors and GME leadership. So I think that's always an option if you don't feel comfortable with your senior or you feel like you need more support than maybe what was provided. They have more years of experience under their belt and hopefully listeners have supportive GME leadership as well. I know we are super lucky. I know that... Um doing procedures as an intern can be very daunting and it's very frustrating when you miss a procedure and you have to call in a senior resident to come and get it. And I think over the year I've learned that there are going to be procedures that you miss and you just have to go back and reevaluate like, why, why did I not get that? Why did I miss it? Or why was there a complication and kind of, like you said, debrief in your mind and walk through it, walk through the process so that next time you can be like, oh, I've seen this before. I've seen this, you know, difficult line before. And the senior resident that stepped in did this, um, put them in more Trendelenburg and they were able to get it easier. And you kind of problem solve your way through it. You're not going to get every procedure in your residency. Um, if you do, you might not be doing enough procedures. You learn more from um. <laughs> the procedures that you miss or fail or need help on than you do from the ones that go perfect. That's what I always tell my younger residents Absolutely. is if you never see a complicated or difficult procedure or for example, a central line, then when you have one in the middle of the night by yourself, when you're a senior, you aren't going to know how to troubleshoot mm-hmm. it. 100%.
So we have a few minutes left, um, and I want to take this opportunity to kind of reflect. You guys, as mentioned, are rock stars. You're sitting here with us, getting ready to watch Oni become a critical care fellow, and I'm about to be working with Dr. Schumann as our attending in the ER and on the floors. What advice would you give to interns and residents as they kind of progress through the rest of their residency to help them thrive or to really help them appreciate this process of residency? I know there's always a lot of sometimes negativity. I just kind of came out of a little hole myself. But how are how are some ways that, you know, you can really enjoy it and, and thrive in residency? I will start if that's okay. Perfect. I would like to offer one explanation, by the way, to listeners. Um, Oni and I did six years because we each also did a separate intern year before starting our combined EMIM program. So we have been at this for six years at two different hospital systems. And I would just say, as cliche as it sounds, you have to learn to love the process, but you also need to find what you're passionate about. I changed my life plans during third year. I was supposed to be starting critical care fellowship right now with Oni. And I just really did some self-reflection and realized that I was not happy in the ICU. And it's okay if you change your plans and you change your mind. And really, like, as soon as I finally had the guts to tell my program director that I didn't want to do critical care and I thought I wanted to work in graduate medical education and hospital administration instead, I really feel like I blossomed over the last, like, two years of residency and really just became a different person. So seek out your passions. And it's okay if your passions are different from your friends, from what you thought your passion was going to be when you started residency. That's okay. That's part of the growing process of residency. I think it's really made me a better person, a better physician, and hopefully a better mentor to, you know, medical students and residents that it's okay if your plans change. Jess is literally the yin to my yang. I am not admin person. (laughs) I am the complete opposite of admin person. I am always a black cloud chaser. Um, So for me, I would say patience and I grow in pains is going to be the word of the day. Um, but seriously, patience, um, coming from a six year combined, I guess, training, I initially was interested in urology and I too had to change the gear and what I wanted to do. And in the process of doing that, I did, as Jess said, I had to I, like love the process. And I think being in a place is very important I would say if students are listening into this to also find somewhere that you see yourself being and see yourself being involved, be in the program or the community. Do you see your fr- yourself being friends with these people? Because you really do grow um, and have a friendship. And I think it's important to be able to do something outside of residency to help navigate through such a very difficult process in your life. And I think... I guess at the end of the day, for me, what helped me blossom is funny when Jess was deciding she did not want to do critical care. I was like, this this is life for me. Um, And once I decided that that's what I wanted to do, I feel like I too then kind of blossomed in my own um, way, um, very different from Jess. But I think it's important to just know that at the end of the day, there is a light at the end of that tunnel. Every patient contact, every hour you spend in the hospital or outside the hospital studying makes you a better physician and a better person as well. 
And it's also important to foster your hobbies because you can't be a fantastic physician if you are miserable outside of the hospital. So make sure you find a little bit of time to have fun, whether that's eating good food in Philadelphia because the food scene here is bomb or hang out with your friends and family. Make sure that you find that time as well. Thank you both so much. Um, This past year has been, I can't imagine doing it without the two of you. Even like starting as like a student auditioning, Jess, I'm so glad that I got connected with you because it is like you've got you've got to find a place where you feel like you belong because residency is hard. It is rough, but it's doable if the people around you are supportive and you enjoy their presence. And I just the amount of knowledge you two have given me over the past year has been immeasurable. It's been amazing. So thank you guys so much. And the amount of times you guys have kept me out of trouble, forever, forever grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to watch you both grow as residents. Excited to see you guys continue on into your junior and senior lives. And hopefully you'll keep me alive as an attending. (laughs) 